Jesus says, if you belong to me, if you're one of my followers, then let me tell you how I expect you to respond when there are intentional attacks against your property. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Does God allow believers to have legal redress for the wrongs done against them to defend themselves within the nation's legal system? Does the Bible forbid Christians from using the legal system? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part five of a series called An Eye for an Eye. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus highlights the popular misunderstanding of the phrase, an eye for an eye. The Pharisees and scribes had begun distorting its meaning, teaching personal revenge when wronged, rather than its true meaning, which is to let the punishment fit the crime. But what should believers do when the scales of justice seem disproportionate and out of sync? Let's find out as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. You follow along as I read the paragraph, Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, very important to remember that these are not isolated sayings. Instead, they relate together in a paragraph that has a central theme, a central message. And the point of the paragraph is this. In the spiritual kingdom over which Jesus rules, he will not permit his disciples to either harbor grudges or to pursue personal revenge, regardless of what others might do to us. Now, again, just to remind you of where we've been so far, Jesus begins in this paragraph by highlighting the popular misunderstanding of an eye for an eye. The Pharisees and the scribes quoted the Old Testament, but they distorted its meaning. So we first went back and look at what the Old Testament actually taught. Those words do come from the Old Testament. Specifically, they come from three Old Testament passages. And if you look at those three passages in their context, as we did, you will find that God never intended this command to be carried out by individuals. You were not the one who was to exact an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth if you were wronged. Instead, this was the standard that Israel's judges were to use when they meted out the proper sentence and penalty for various offenses. And the basic point was frankly the foundation of all just judicial and legal systems. And it's this, the punishment should fit the crime. This was a novel idea in the ancient world. And this was an expression of God's own just character. The punishment fits the crime. That's what it was intended to be and to say. 
But that's not what the scribes and Pharisees taught. They taught instead that the lex talionis, that's Latin for the name of this law, means the law of retaliation. They taught that this law, an eye for an eye, allowed, even encouraged, personal retaliation and revenge. What God had intended to be a protection against revenge and make sure the the penalty actually fit the crime and wasn't an escalating sort of vendetta by the family against the perpetrator of the wrong, they absolutely turned on its head. They made it a biblical justification for holding grudges and for seeking revenge. And Jesus told his disciples, listen, they've completely missed the point. And then he set his disciples, and us straight. Because in the rest of this paragraph, we have started to find Jesus' revolutionary teaching about personal revenge. Verses 39 to 42. Now again, as we've noted, Jesus begins with a general principle. Look at the beginning of verse 39. But I say to you, in contrast to what you've heard taught by the scribes and Pharisees about the Old Testament, let me properly interpret for you how you should respond personally. I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Now again, remember the context here. It's when you have been personally wronged, when you have been sinned against. When that happens, if you're a Christian, you are not to resist. The word means to set yourself in hostile opposition toward. It means essentially to declare war. Don't declare war against that person who has wronged you. That's the general principle. Then Jesus proceeds to give us four specific examples of what this looks like in life. Let me just remind you of the four examples. Number one, How do we respond when there are intentional attacks on our personal dignity? The second example has to do with intentional attacks on our personal property. The third example is governmental attacks on our personal liberty. And the fourth example is intentional attacks on our personal generosity. So attacks on our dignity, on our property, on our liberty... And on our generosity. Verse 39, the second half of the verse, is this first example. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, because this text and the ones that follow are so abused and misused, in each case, we've started by making sure we understand what it does not teach. Because whatever Jesus means has to synchronize with the rest of the Scripture. Jesus is not contradicting the rest of Scripture. And in fact, back in verse 17, he said, I didn't come to abolish, but I came to fulfill everything else God has said. So what he's teaching here cannot conflict with and contradict other clear teaching of Scripture. So therefore, it cannot mean a couple of things it's made to mean by some well-intentioned Christians, and that is it cannot mean non-resistance or non-violence. That is, that it is never appropriate in any setting for a Christian to use violence, even in self-defense or in the defense of someone else's life. That's not what Jesus is saying, because that contradicts other clear passages of Scripture. Nor is it teaching passivism, and we looked at that as well. 
In fact, we discovered, just to remind you, that Scripture allows true believers to be soldiers. Scripture allows true believers to engage in self-defense of their own lives and the life of, of others. And the Scripture allows Christians to use force as a government official. So, that's what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? It's a specific cultural event. To be backhanded on the right cheek was not an act of violence as much as it was a gross and intentional insult. That's how it was understood in that culture. It was an intentional violation of your personal dignity and honor. Now, we don't have exactly the same expression, at least not often. Sometimes we might be slapped as an insult, but most of the time the insults that you and I encounter are verbal. Words intended to carve and cut and maim. So how does Jesus want us to respond to intentional insults? Verse 39, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. In other words, Don't return insult for insult. That's what he's saying. Don't decide that you need to either return in kind or perhaps even escalate the insult a little bit in order to get even and exercise your will. Jesus says, look, better for you to take another insult, be slapped on the other cheek, than for you to return in kind. Don't harbor grudges. Don't pursue revenge when someone violates your personal dignity with insults. Now today we come to the second example our Lord gives us, and that is intentional attacks on our personal property. Intentional attacks on our personal property. Look at verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Now again, it's very important for us to interpret this expression in light of its context as well as the context of the rest of Scripture. So let's begin by looking at what this does not, cannot mean in light of the rest of the teaching of Scripture. Jesus does not mean here that his followers may never seek justice in the legal system when they are wronged. He does not mean that. Now let me give you some arguments to defend that statement. First of all, understand that God himself established such a legal judicial system in Israel. A judicial system was not a man-made enterprise. It is a reflection in the end of both the character and command of God. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17. As God lays out the laws for the new nation and how things are to be handled in, among this people. In Deuteronomy 17, he begins the chapter by talking about an idolater who in that culture, with God as king, would be a gross offense against the king. It would be an act of treason, an act of rebellion, and therefore a capital offense. As he talks about this in verse 6, he says, but, but understand that this idolater can only be stoned on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses. And verse 7, the hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. By the way, that 
gives a lot of insight into that story in John 8 when Jesus says, who's going to cast the first stone? You have to come back and understand it from this text, but that's another message for another time. But what happens then, the, the, the idea was God set up in every town, every village, a local court. That court was made up of the elders of the city. It was made up of the, the older men from the leading homes and families. They were to hear cases that came in that community. But what happens if in the case of this idolater or some other case, they're unable to come to a determination, unable to make a decision? What happens then? Well, look at verse 8. If any case is too difficult for you to decide at the local court level, between one kind of homicide or another, whether it's manslaughter or murder, between one kind of lawsuit or another, some kind of uh, dispute, between one kind of assault or another, any kind of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Basically, you're to take that undecided case to the central sanctuary. Of course, initially in Shiloh, eventually in Jerusalem, And there you are to see it dealt with. Verse 9, you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who was in office in those days. There was a chief presiding justice. And then there was a, a pool of other judges or jury, I suppose we could call them, made up of the priests. Verse 9, you shall inquire of them and they shall declare to you the verdict in the case. You shall do according to the terms of the verdict which they declare to you from that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you, according to the terms of the law which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or to the left. In other words, you had a local court, you had an appeal to a kind of supreme court, and everyone in the nation was to recognize its authority and jurisdiction. Whatever they decided, they were the men who knew God's law best. Their word was binding. Their verdict was binding and was to be respected. So understand then, God established a judiciary system in Israel. The fact that we and other countries have a judiciary system, albeit flawed and sinful, is ultimately a reflection of the command of God and even the character of God imprinted on the human soul. It is a reflection of the image of God. Why? Because God is a God of justice. In fact, the psalm says, justice is the foundation of His throne. And so to make sure as best it can be done at a human level that justice is done, God has established human judiciary systems. In fact... God is even spoken of in the Old Testament as using the judicial system to bring his case against Israel. There are a number of examples. Let me just show you one. Look at Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. The prophet Hosea says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has, and the Hebrew word here is court case. The Lord has a court case against the inhabitants of the land. Here's God bringing a court case against Israel because there's no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, adultery, violence. So God not only initiated a judiciary system as a reflection of His own nature, His own pursuit of justice, 
But God even uses the image of himself of taking his people to court because of their sin. God was very concerned and is very concerned that justice be done. In fact, a breakdown of justice in the nation Israel was the cause of God's indictment of the people and eventually even of his judgment on the people. Why was Judah carried off into captivity? Well, there are a number of answers to that question, but one of them has to do with this very issue. In Lamentations, which is a a little book between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, in which Jeremiah laments the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, and listen to one of the reasons God gave. This is Lamentations 3, Verse 33, God does not afflict, and notice the marginal note here, I love this, God does not afflict from his heart. God doesn't find delight in this or grieve the sons of men. To crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land. But here's why, here's part of the indictment, because there are those who who crush prisoners, who deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, and they were defrauding a man in his lawsuit. Of these things, the Lord does not approve. Part of the reason, part of the indictment, part of the justification for God's bringing the judgment of the Babylonians on his people was because of their utter abuse of justice in the legal system that he had set up. Even as New Testament believers, God allows us to have legal redress for the wrongs done to us, to defend ourselves. In fact, in in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells his disciples, listen, you're going to be falsely accused and you're going to be brought before court. When that happens, I want you to defend yourself in court against those charges. Don't think ahead of what you're going to share. Instead, it'll be given to you at that moment. But you have the right to defend yourself in that legal system. You're going to be falsely accused. Paul certainly did that in the book of Acts. He uses the Roman court system to defend himself against the false charges of insurrection, rebellion against the empire. Now, when I say that God has no problem with Christians using the legal system in their defense in the pursuit of justice, the obvious question that comes up is about what passage? 1 Corinthians 6. What about that? What is Paul teaching there? Doesn't that passage forbid Christians from using the legal system? Well, because it's so important to this issue, let's turn there for a moment. 1 Corinthians 6. Just to remind you, the Corinthian church had all kinds of problems. It was uniquely gifted, but it also was tolerating all kinds of sin, from petty divisions, squabbles, to allowing a man who had committed incest to remain in the church undisciplined, drunken brawls at the love feast and the Lord's table, the abuse of tongues. And here in 1 Corinthians 6, they were suing one another in secular courts. Verse 1, Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In the millennial kingdom, the saints are going to judge the world. If the world is judged by you, if that's going to happen, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? 
Do you not know that we will judge angels? And I think here the word judge probably has more to do with the idea of rule. We're going to rule over angels. They're ministering spirits for our benefit. Well, if that's going to happen, how much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud by initiating these lawsuits. You do this even to your brethren. Now, there are a couple of very important points to note about this paragraph. First of all, notice that it is not about criminal wrongdoing, but disputes over money, finances, and property. Notice verse 7. Why would you not rather be defrauded? That is, lose some financial, financial advantage. If someone has committed a crime, under most circumstances, that crime should be reported to the government. According to Romans 13, government exists to punish evildoers. Sadly, sometimes that even includes Christians. But secondly, I want you to notice what this passage is not teaching. My father-in-law used to say, we need to let the Bible say what it says. What does Paul say here? It does not say that when another Christian wrongs you, you must from the start simply suffer wrong. That's not what this passage says. Instead, Paul demands that disputes among Christians should be settled among Christians in the church. That's what he's saying. His admonition assumes that the two disputing believers are in the same church in this case, or, or at least in churches, both of whom are willing to deal responsibly with the sin and the problem. So here's the point of, of 1 Corinthians 6. If you have a dispute with another Christian... It should be settled without involving unbelievers. But if that's not possible, Paul says, then it's better for you to suffer wrong and to lose money than for two Christians to be suing each other in civil court. But what Paul does not forbid in 1 Corinthians 6 is either A, seeking justice in the church if the person's a professing Christian, or B, using the legal system when it's someone outside the church who has wronged you. In other words, God is still interested that things be brought to a just conclusion. We just can't do it in the way that the Corinthian believers were doing it. So just to sort of summarize, what are the legitimate legal recourses for a Christian who's been wronged? If you've been wronged, what are the legitimate ways legally for that to be expressed. First of all, if a crime has been committed by a fellow Christian, it ordinarily needs to be reported to the government. Romans 13, government exists to punish evildoers, and we are not to protect people from the consequences of their choices. Among Christians, the most common expression of this, unfortunately, happens in domestic violence in the home. If you are the the recipient of domestic violence, if your spouse is hitting you, is physically violent towards you, 
Don't guard and protect that person from the consequences of his choices. Come see an elder. Let's talk about how to approach the situation. But in the end, if that person begins to be physically violent, call the police and have them arrested. Government exists to punish evildoers. And at that moment, that person is being an evildoer. So that's what we're to do if it's a crime. But what if it's a dispute between two Christian brothers and they're unable to settle it on their own? You try first, obviously, to settle it on your own. But if you're unable to do that, in the end, bring it to the church. Bring it to the elders. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, Gifted to Serve. Tom will bring you part six next time, and we hope you'll join us then. In a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.